0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and the 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, welcome to 2021. We made it. Woo-hoo. <laughs> you just well, seem ecstatic.
1: Yeah, well, well, no, come on. Let's uh, we, we all hope we were going to wake up this morning, and everything was going to be like Thanos snap, and, and like all of a sudden, it would be in a happy way. Everything would go back to normal, but apparently, it
0: has, it has. Ben Simmons hit a three. Everything's normal. It's all good.
1: No, that that in and of <laughs> itself is a Twilight Zone episode, right there. Ben Simmons hitting a three pointer. Twilight Zone.
0: That's not the perfect way to end 2020. <laughs> ben Simmons hit a three. <laughs> I
1: di- I did text you and and some of the Sixers beat writers um, when that happened. That the end of times is clearly here when Ben Simmons hits a three pointer.
0: A few fans that were in the Orlando arena were cheering for Ben Simmons in a three in rotation.
1: Do you not find that at all obnoxious? No, I'm not. No, I'm not playing. Just on we're clear. I'm not blaming the Orlando Magic fans. I find this whole thing with Ben Simmons insulting to fans and even insulting to Ben Simmons. He is a max paid professional basketball player who doesn't even attempt And barely, this was his third, I believe, professional three-pointer. And everybody sits there and claps and cheers, including his teammates, that he tries something that he should be trying on his own without having to sit there and, and coddle him with clap, 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 yay, you tried.
0: You know who was more excited than Dwight Howard that Ben Simmons hit a three? Our guy on the other side of glass, Mike Vito, happy 2021, 2021, who has the over three and a half for Ben Simmons making three point shooters, three point shots this year, Jeff. You think he's got a chance? (laughs) Well, when you told me about it
1: before we came on the air, my question was is the over-under on on the attempts or on the makes? Because he is not making four.
0: Well, he's a quarter of the way there for Mr. Vito. so
1: it, it, it's just it, this is one of those instances where instead of it being encouraging him for to do it, all this means is, is he's going to go. Okay, I'm not going to do. It. I don't. I now I've proved it. I can hit a three pointer. I don't need to do it anymore. All right, let's let's get to so the Sixers start. So don't want to talk about this.
0: Well, I look. He's he's never going to be a three point sharpshooter. I don't understand. Why people just can't let he doesn't have to be he had just has to take it look i we've used this analogy before if you don't hand the ball off when you do play action nobody buys the play action they don't think you're going to run don't ever shoot the ball from outside of two feet nobody will respect your game outside of two feet
1: so and that and that's the other problem with this okay fine he hit a three-pointer but how many times have you seen him try a 15 or 12 foot jumper this year? You have not. He's not taking those.
0: Do they have enough shooters around him now to mask that?
1: No, I thought they might, but now they don't. If you, if you, you, this is not a sky is falling thing. It's just, it is evidently clear that this group of players may get better as a team. They the spacing will get better as the season goes on. The fact is, is that these guys are not good enough. Seth Curry is obviously that yesterday was a nice game. Uh, The other guy, Green, it's just so far, I haven't seen anything that I sit there and go, wow, nothing.
0: All right. So if we look at last night's game, we'll look at last night's game, then we'll go to the season so far. Then we've got an interview coming up with Jesse Washington that you're not going to want to miss. Uh, so last night, Sixers blow out the Magic 116.92. Jeff, that got out of hand fast. Although the Magic had 35 points, at that time they trailed by 37 points. Mark,
1: Markel Fultz may actually have more points than he's had in past seasons, but I'm telling you, he still doesn't look like he knows how to shoot. He would, it's still painful to watch that.
0: It, it is very painful to watch the whole thing. The Sixers made season high 15 three pointers on 33 attempts. Seth Curry was five of seven. Tobias Harris hit three of four. Matisse Thybulle made an appearance in the game. Jeff, I was wondering if after extending him that extra third year, if he was going to see the basketball court this season.
1: Well, I, I don't think the extension has anything to do with them showing more confidence in him. I think that what that does is make him actually better trade bait. So he's now locked in for another season.
0: Okay. So so, so you, have, you, have, you 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 have
1: you have salary you have salary certainty. So if, if, and when they decide to pull the trigger on another trade at some point in this season, Matisse is going to be a valuable chip in that. I don't get the impression that doc rivers, the team thinks that he's going to be a good enough shooter to stay on this team, regardless of how good his defense was, because when they were getting annihilated the other night, you, how many times did you not look at the court and go, what they need here is a stop. And they weren't putting him in even to play defense,
0: which surprised me. I, I, I don't know what it is if Doc's not comfortable with him yet, but he is not anywhere close to the rotation before the other night.
1: No, the only reason he's getting in now is because Furkan got hurt. Otherwise, which, he'd be languishing on the bench right now.
0: Which again, shocks me. I never understand Furcon's consistency in the rotation. Uh, I didn't understand that with the last coach. Don't understand it with the current coach. Dwight Howard had seven points, five rebounds. He hit a three-pointer, Jeff. Best two, best $2 million signing of the offseason? Yeah, when, let
1: me know when he starts to shoot free
0: throws. Well, well, details, Jeff, details. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, all right, so let's look at where they are on the season right now. They're 4-1. and one. They lead the NBA with nearly eight blocks a game. They're tied for fifth in rebounds at 48.2. They rank third in the NBA in points allowed at 99.8 a game. And beats fifth in the NBA in rebounds at 12.3. And Ben has almost two blocks a game, 1.6 per game. That's tied for eighth.
1: Their defense isn't the problem.
0: What is? This, your- a, this is a
1: fun team to watch. I mean, it, look, if we if we could go there, season ticket holders would be really happy to go to games.
0: I'm glad but- you said
1: that. Why?
0: I so I've been okay watching like lots of other sports on TV and accepting the fact that fans aren't there. Mm-hmm. Watching basketball, I miss that atmosphere. Watching these games, I, I feel like watching summer ball. I'm yeah. so
1: with you there because, you you know, I, I was a season ticket holder. So when you go to those games, the place is electric and you know how much the players feed off of that energy to the point. And if you need proof of that, the fact that the frosty freeze out almost shakes the building's rafters apart shows you how loud that can get and how intimidating it can get there. And you miss that. in bas- Same thing with college basketball. Last night, college basketball had on two really good games, a Big 10 game and a Pac-12 game. And it's just weird to be watching those games and they're basically, they were talking about how in the Big 10, teams were going on the road, which was unheard of beforehand, going on the road and winning a lot more this season. And the reason is, it's just like playing a neutral court game. All you're doing is traveling, but you're traveling to a place that the only people cheering are the actual other players who are on the bench.
0: So what's your feel of this team right now? Their defense is solid. Uh, I'm going to ask you this question every week because it was interesting that you brought it up before the start of the season. When the, With the Harden trade rumors, Harden's averaging 37 points a game right now. He's doing his thing. And and the, the genesis of that conversation wasn't, would you do the deal? It's who gets the last shot for the Sixers? Right. Do we have any more clarity now that they're four and one and played five games of who gets the last shot for the Sixers?
1: Actually, I think right now, if I had to place my money somewhere, it would be Tobias Harris.
0: Okay, I was wondering if it would be Seth Curry at this
1: point. No, uh, I, I don't think you're, you're at a point based on what we've seen so far that Seth Curry is the guy that you're going to run the play to win the game. Are Tobias we- Harris is going to be the guy because he can, do, he can do the three-pointer, he can do the mid-range shot, and he's strong enough and powerful enough that he can get to the basket and draw a foul. And he's, he's the guy on that team that is capable of doing that. How many times did I text you? How many times did we talk about last season that I don't understand? There are games when Tobias Harris looks like he's got a chip on his shoulder and can take over a half or sometimes take over a game. And then all of a sudden he would disappear for games. And it is not because he's not capable of it. It's not because he doesn't have the heart to do it. It's because of the makeup of the team that he was the third and fourth option at times. With Doc Rivers here and Doc Rivers having worked with him before and gotten the best out of him when they were both with the Clippers, to me, that seems like the logical answer, which is Tobias, you got to take it. You got to be the man. And don't worry if you're offending Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons or anybody else. And I think as evidence of the more evidence of that, think about what Doc Rivers is saying in the post game press conferences. When they talk about Ben Simmons, what does he say? He talks about his defense. He talks about his passing. He talks about winning. He doesn't talk about needing to get Ben shots. So the only person you really have to worry about now is Joel. And I don't. Th- I think that Doc Rivers is just going to say, look, if I can run a play and Tobias does this, and Joel, you get your points and you get your rebounds and you get your all-star game, then, then Tobias is going to be the guy.
0: I think he actually actively pushes back against the idea that Ben needs to shoot threes. Now, maybe that's to protect Ben from the criticism of people who say he doesn't but you know docs out there sort of taking the sling so that he doesn't take the hit for it. Well,
1: that's what a good coach does a good coach finds the weaknesses, hides the weaknesses and then he also plays to their strengths and so he's doing that right
0: now. All right, let's let's leave the Sixers talk there and let's let's go to an interview that, that we did about a good coach let's. Let's go to our conversation. Good coach? You mean a great coach? A great coach. Let's go to our conversation here with Jesse Washington, and then we'll come back and talk about it on the flip side. Jeff, we've got something special going on now. We're going to bring on Jesse Washington, senior writer for ESPN's The Undefeated, award-winning writer, including Journalist of the Year Award from the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, co-author of the John Thompson Jr. autobiography, I Came as a Shadow. Jesse, thanks so much for giving us some time to talk about this all. How are you doing today, man?
2: I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, we we appreciate it. Uh, we, we really enjoyed the book and had so many questions coming out of it. John Thompson, obviously a, a fascinating man to begin with. And here you are, you get all this time with him. I wanted to start at the beginning. How, how did you become involved with the project? And, and can you tell us about the first time you met with him and his family?
2: Sure. You know, Coach didn't know me or, and I don't think he'd ever heard of me, but some of the folks who were helping him put the project together were familiar with my work and I was one of the candidates to write the book so he interviewed a number of people and I went over to his house to meet him his daughter Tiffany and his son John and I wouldn't call it a grilling but it was definitely a stiff questioning and coach is a tremendous teacher and um, you know but fortunately I had done my homework and so when he asked me questions like you've never written a book like before what makes you think you could write mine you know I had some decent answers ready And I think that one of the reasons he chose me, among many, was that we both really cared about the fact that this was a book more than basketball. It wasn't about um, how he strategized to win this game or to beat that game or stuff like that. It was about all the things that are important about the game of basketball, but take place off the court, that take place in your mind, that take place in the community. Uh, things like that. So he could tell that I really cared about that. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he chose me.
1: You know, in the introduction to your book, you make that point where you say, I always planned to be a teacher, not a basketball coach. I used basketball as an instrument to teach. I felt a responsibility to broaden my players' perspectives of the world and themselves. What was the motivation for him to be a teach and do more than, as he says, Talk about how to run a two-two-one one zone press or a fast break.
2: Yeah, that was Coach's mission in life, uh, to teach. And he got it from, as he would say, busy environment and time. So his mother was a trained teacher. She had a college degree, uh, but she was not able to practice her profession due to segregation and lack of opportunities at that time. So she had to clean houses. And then he encountered uh, several very strong teachers who did a lot for him in his formative years, and he credits them with his desire to be a teacher. Also, um, he had several uh, very influential figures in his life at Police Boys Club Number no. 2 in Washington, D.C., where he grew up playing sports and hanging around, and there were guys there who were like youth counselors, you know. They were coaches also, but they didn't care as much about these games as they did about making sure that you knew how to handle yourself properly uh, in a formal setting or teaching you how to talk to people in a way to come off well in an interview. Uh, Mr. Javel Kenner, Mr. Bill Butler, and Julius Wyatt, these were other of his greatest mentors as young people. So if you add it up, all of the people he mentions in the book who had a tremendous influence in him as a child, starting with his mother and father, and then black women teachers, these black men who were mentors at the boys' club, Those were his role models. He wanted to be like them, and they imprinted upon him a desire to help others through education.
0: He didn't have the easiest life. You know, the nuns at the Catholic school insulted his intelligence. He he had race challenges that he faced during his playing career. He faced loss and challenges. But at the same time, he became a trailblazer for other Black coaches. In the book, it says, but as I got further in my career— basketball became a way of kicking down a door that had been closed to black people. It was a way for me to express that we don't have to act apologetic for obtaining what God intended us to have. And then it goes, all this came out of the strong responsibility I felt to teach kids more than how to throw a ball through a hoop. He recognized the role that, that he had, but when did he realize just how much of a difference and an influence he was making as he kicked down that door for other people?
2: I'm glad you picked up on that. That's a really cool question. And I think he realized that when people started coming up to him and saying, thank you. And like he says in the book, they weren't saying thank you for because I was beating St. John. They were saying thank you because of what he accomplished, what he represented. Coach Thompson is very clear in his book that he knew he had to win in order to do anything. If he didn't win, nobody would listen to what he had to say. He would not be an example for anybody. But once he won, he recognized that he knew to other people, that he represented excellence and achievement through intellectual means. He thought his way to greatness. You know, Coach Thompson was not uh, who he became because of his athletic ability, although he did have plenty of that. And so when people will come up to him and say thank you, when his kids would graduate and then go on to make a difference in the community, there's several very poignant moments in the book where he describes his former players who we he never heard of who probably only scored a handful of points in their four years at Georgetown, but they made an impact on their community in a very meaningful way. And he said, that's Georgetown basketball. So I think when those things started to happen, then he figured, yeah, okay, I'm accomplishing my goals and I'm making a difference in the world.
0: I wanted to see if you could expand on it, actually, because one of the people that I've seen you talk about is Lonnie Doran, who – Played for Thompson, but never in a game, graduated with his diploma. But John seems so proud of what he did after he left school and how much that meant to him. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking because this was, I never saw coach Prouder than when we were sitting around with Lonnie Duran at Boys Club Number Two. And Mr. Duran is now the director of Boys Club Number Two. So uh, Lonnie's, uh, Lonnie's younger brother, John Duran, aka Bebe, was a star and went to the NBA. Lonnie did not. Lonnie played very sparingly, but he went back to the community after he graduated. And there was a a neighborhood in DC called Sersum Corda, and it was federally subsidized housing for lower income people. And to sort of condense the story, this was prime real estate and the city tried to basically take it over and do a big new expensive housing development housing, commercial, something like that. Now, you know what happens when, when that goes down. All the residents who live there, the poor folks, the people who have been there for generations, they get moved out, and nobody really knows or cares where they go. So Lonnie Duran was determined that this would not happen. And so he teamed up with one of his former Georgetown teammates, Felix Yeoman, and they fought the city for years and years. And they mobilized the tenants and At the end of the day, they secured a $62 million deal, which included all sorts of provisions guaranteeing the continuation of housing for the local residents. It it maintained affordable housing in this prime real estate only blocks from the U.S. capital and had all sorts of other perks that they negotiated for the residents who had really belonged there. And Coach Thompson said, I'm as proud of what Lonnie did as I am of my guys who went to the NBA and the Hall of Fame. And and the quote that really stuck with me, and he said it verbatim, he looked at me and he said, Jesse, that's Georgetown basketball, which is really a profound statement because it has nothing to do with sports. (laughs) You know, it has to do with the community. It has to do with helping others. It has to do with two of his guys who got their diplomas going back to the neighborhood that, that put them in a position to succeed and reaching down and lifting other people up. Like, I love that story about uh, Coach Thompson. And to me, that really sums up his life's mission. I'm going to educate these kids. Felix Yeoman and Lonnie Duran are not guys that anybody knows for basketball. But in that community, they know them because they made a difference.
1: Well, one of the things is that it's not just, just that he educated students and the people that went to georgetown what what always impresses me about a good book is is when i learn something about a subject matter i already know stuff about people know people in the sports world know so much about john thompson and there's so much that comes out in this book that we still didn't know and to me one of the most fascinating things was how candid he was in the book about why he was hired by georgetown and confronting their past. Can you talk about what he thought his role was and why he decided to take on such a heavy role with regard to coming to Georgetown despite their past?
2: Yeah, well, let, let me take a moment here to really thank you guys and uh, for the depth at which you engaged with this book and the way you've read it and really you know, are, are picking up on some really important things. And Coach Thompson would be so pleased to, to hear you guys asking these questions. He loved nothing more than to, to uh, excite the curiosity of people in an intellectual sense. So he would be so pleased. I wish he could be doing this interview instead of me. So the way he got hired at Georgetown was really amazing. And you have to really go back to when he graduated from high school in 1960 as one of, if not the most highly recruited player in the city of Washington. Scholarship offers to all the big schools, but not Georgetown because Georgetown's team in 1960 was segregated. Fast forward 12 years later, the city has rioted after the assassination of Martin Luther King, racial strife has torn apart the country, and Georgetown looks out over the smoldering ruins of black Washington and says, we have to do better. We're letting down our responsibility to our community and to our educational mission because we don't have any black people at our school. And when I say we don't have any, I don't mean that literally but figuratively there were only a handful of black students at georgetown i don't know how many if any black professors they had and by the way their basketball team had a couple black guys but they were 3 and 23. and so georgetown decided and their admissions director charlie deacon said hmm, one of the ways that we can set georgetown on the right path is to get us a kick-ass basketball team up in here and Charlie Deakins didn't say this explicitly, but here is the thought process that Coach describes in the book. Well, they knew that there were a lot of good black basketball players in Washington. They knew I was a black coach who had a lot of these good black players on my high school team. So that is how they hired Coach John Thompson. Yes, he was an outstanding high school coach, but the main reason they hired him is because he's black. Now, I guess they sort of got lucky, and and they stumbled upon one of the greatest coaches and educators in the history of the game. But the primary thing they were looking for was skin color. So this is an amazing example of some of the, the confounding situations that Coach Thompson found himself in and had to reconcile. Yes, he deserved the job. Yes, he was the best candidate, as he subsequently proved. But that's not why he was hired or not why he was primarily hired. You know, they wanted a black coach, and they went after John Thompson, who was the best black coach and a native of Washington, D.C. So, you know, what do you do with that? You know, that's part of what goes into this whole psychology that Coach had and his whole set of experiences that informed all of the things that he did later. I mean, as he says in the book, Georgetown went from not recruiting me because I was black to hiring me because I was black. It's a fascinating situation.
0: How much, if any, of this book and the writing of it do you think for him was about setting the record straight? He, he was somebody that was sometimes viewed differently and misunderstood. He was seen as intimidating because of his size and the stands that he took for race. Was any of this about him telling his story in his own words because he felt like people always interpreted him their own ways?
2: Some of it was, yes. And the main thing that really comes across in the book, the, the, the biggest thing that he wanted to correct, was the idea that he intended to intimidate people because that was by far the most prevalent and i think most hurtful for him mischaracterization more so than people calling him a racist because he knew he wasn't a racist it was absurd when you look at the number and depth of the relationships he had with white people you know um he that was just crazy on its face but to be consistently accused of trying to bulldoze people and Buffalo them, as he would say, or steamroll them or intimidate them, or force them to do something with the threat of physical violence. That was deeply hurtful to him, although he didn't say so explicitly, but I think that pain comes through in the pages and he addressed it very directly and consistently in the book. I think that was the main misperception that he wanted to correct, but this is not a book where he settles scores. In fact, I really had to urge Coach to talk about some of the people who had wronged him. He didn't want to throw people under the bus, even if they deserve to be there. You know, he was very kind in his book to a lot of folks and has um like a sin covering eye in this autobiography. So, you know, he could have settled a lot more scores and I'm sure he had a lot more to settle, but he chose not to. The biggest thing that he chose to deal with was the idea the mischaracterization that he intended to bully people.
1: As somebody who who spent so much time with him, uh, putting together this book, what? How did your view of him change from the time that you were a college student at Yale to the to the time that you finished the book yourself?
2: It did change um, because I realized that. I mean, I knew the reputation, and I knew what I saw on TV, and I was a voracious reader, so I knew all the stuff I read, but what I came to understand through being with him was that his reasons for doing all these things, and all those reasons primarily revolved around his desire to be a teacher and a protector. You know, his earliest teachers protected him. He had problems, educational difficulties, insecurities, and his teachers protected though him in those areas, and he always did the same thing for his players even when he was criticized for, especially when he was criticized for. So I came to understand, I, I sort of developed this, and you know, and this was my view of him, so it didn't belong in this book because this was his book to describe himself as he saw fit. But I came away with a picture of him as like the mama grizzly bear. You know, number one, he had so many strong women influences in his life and was a champion for women and giving women opportunities before it was fashionable to do so. So I don't think Coach would be mad at being compared to a mama grizzly bear, and he describes himself as a mama's boy. But he was down to protect his kids, and his kids were his players, in addition to his biological children. And he would protect them at all costs. And if you came close to messing with them, that's when he would get really fierce, and you thought that your life was in danger. You know, but the mama grizzly bear doesn't want to kill you; she just wants you to turn around and leave her kids alone. You know,
0: and, so. And one of- one of those kids. I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you because I want to, I know you're tight on time, but we're a Philly show. So we got to ask you about one of those kids, Allen Iverson, the, the special relationship he had with him. When Allen went into the hall of fame, he said, no other schools were recruiting me anymore. My mom went to Georgetown and begged John Thompson to give me a chance. And he did. Can you talk about how special the relationship was between Allen and coach Thompson?
2: Yeah, I mean, Philly fans will not be disappointed. Of all of Coach's great players, Hall of Fame players, Allen is the only one who gets his own chapter. Because Coach understood how special Allen was and what a special place he holds in basketball history. Um, he loved that boy. He loved that boy. That was, that was Those are his words, you know. And he respected Allen for being able to overcome this tremendously difficult and unfair start that Alan had. Because let's not forget, Alan Iverson was unjustly convicted as an adult at age 17 of a crime. And there was no evidence, real good evidence for that conviction, as was later determined in court, when his conviction was thrown out. So let's just start there. And then Alan Iverson lost every single college scholarship that he had, which had to be more than 100. Nobody wanted to help him except Coach Thompson. And I, I hope that, that Philly people will read that part of the book for themselves. I don't want to ruin the story and let Coach tell it. But the story of how Allen and his mom came to, to talk to Coach and how he got on that team is amazing. And it shows a lot about Allen, his mom, and Iverson, and especially Coach Thompson, why he took him on his team. Because he didn't know that he was going to be the Allen Iverson. Yeah, he knew he was a good player. He knew he was potentially a great player, but we didn't know he was one of the all-time greats who would do incredible things like think nobody played like iverson as a freshman for georgetown before that ever so um and you know even in the book where we talked about coach protecting his kids and everything he did was about protecting his kids he protected alan iverson his book obviously alan has had a lot of difficulties off the court that have been well chronicled coach was not interested in talking about any of that in his book and why would he people know that already he was talking about how when he told Alan to do something, Alan always did it. Whatever he asked, he practiced hard. He was always on time. He always went to class. He was respectful. <laughs> you know? That's the Allen Iverson that Coach Thompson had. I will let loose one detail from the book. After Alan got to Philly, a reporter said, Hey, you got some new ink. What would Coach Thompson think about those tattoos? And Alan said, If Coach Thompson was here, I wouldn't have these new tattoos. <laughs> you know, so There was a mutual respect that went both ways, you know, and at the same time, Coach, uh, let Allen be Allen. And I really think that, you know, what made Iverson so special beyond his ability was his refusal to act like people said he should act. He was going to be him no matter what and be true to himself. And I think he got some of that from Coach Thompson, you know, because everybody wanted Coach Thompson to sit down, to shut up, to be quiet, to not play so aggressively with his team just because of their own insecurities. And and Coach Coach, uh, Thompson was like, nah, I will be me. And that's Allen Iverson, too. So I think he got some of that from Coach. It was a tremendously loving relationship. If it was not for John Thompson, we would not know the name Allen Iverson today, period, point blank.
0: The book is I Came as a Shadow. Jesse, we could talk to you all day about this. I encourage everybody to get the book from the small things of why Coach Thompson wore the towel over his shoulder to the big things of the relationships people never knew about across the court. And off the court, you you really capture something. Like like Jeff and I said, we really learned a bunch. So we appreciate the time you gave us. Love to have you back on some other time to talk this and other things going on in the world. And I hope you have a great new year. Thanks so much for the time.
2: You guys are great. This was a tremendous interview. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. Jeff, I credit you with the interview being great. Well done. Good questions. Now That was, uh, <laughs> look, we get lucky. We get some good people that we get to talk to on this show and and John Thompson is a complicated man and this book does its best to explain him through his own eyes. And I think you and I both were kind of fascinated by some of the things that we learned that that came out in, it. and I think that came through in the interview with Jesse. Well, that you know, people, you know, people like us
1: we're, we're sports junkies. We we read all of this stuff, and we know a lot, and we don't know a lot. Um, but it does always amaze me. I meant it when I said it to him. I learned a lot in this book that I didn't know about John Tom, John Thompson. Um, I always respected him as a coach and a person, especially what he did off the court. I wasn't a huge fan of his. I was, cause I wasn't a Georgetown fan. And, and when, you know, when you're, when you're involved in sports, you either root for everybody on a team or you root against everybody on a team. And John Thompson was on the, what coached a team that I was rooted against, but the stuff that he did. And, you know, there was one thing that I wish I would have thought about asking and I didn't, which was, and this comes because I'm tall now. I'm not John Thompson tall, but but I, I always wondered whether John Thompson, part of, part of what happened with John Thompson was because he was so larger than life. And I, and I don't mean that metaphorically. He, this was a, you know, there, how many seven foot college basketball head coaches were there or have there ever been? I mean, Jawan Howard is now, but John Thompson was so imposing. And you wonder if he ever recognized that part of the problem or if he ever thought part of the problem was his size. You know, if he walks up to a ref and complains about something, it looks like he's being a bully because he's so much bigger than the guy that he's now yelling at just the way that you would see Rick Bettino yell at him. And it doesn't seem so intimidating.
0: On the video stream, I'm looking straight up to the sky. Cause <laughs> that would be what it would be like to stand next to coach Thompson. And uh, it, it was just, I, I really enjoyed read and look i'm not a reader okay i do so much reading from work and other things i don't often read for pleasure but a lot of times i'll give you credit you'll find these books for us and i'll give them a read and it's it's eye-opening and there's so much more in the book the how he dealt with the drug culture in dc the legend and lore around that and his players the relationships he had with his players the special relationship he had with john cheney you want Philadelphia angles, the impact that Villanova beating them in 85 had on him. That's all in the book separate from Allen and everybody else. And it really was a really interesting read. And it's really well-written.
1: Yeah. It, it, it just is.
0: It's a, uh, it's good stuff. So we'll, we'll hope to get Jesse back on again. That that was a lot of fun. Uh, let's, let's keep it moving. You know, we talked about coach as a trailblazer, got another trailblazer in the NBA right now, Jeff, we had the first female to coach as the head coach in a basketball game this week. Becky Hammond. I mean, yeah. She didn't really make huge news because it's not like she was hired as the head coach. She became, she assumed the duties when Greg Popovich got two technicals and got tossed.
1: But- do, do, do you ever wonder, see, Greg Popovich is, is one of those guys, again, I'm not a San Antonio Spurs fan. Uh, I'm not particularly a Popovich fan, but what he does and the way he handles himself, now he's a cranky guy when he's in a press conference. Uh, you know, he he can rival Bill Belichick in the way that he handles a pre- press conference. But the way that he handles societal issues, the way that he deals with his, his players, and the way he's handled things like this, um, he's a trailblazer in the sport. So Becky Hammond obviously is a trailblazer because she earned her way here. But it, it takes sometimes somebody helping that person, helping everybody else see that she's earned that. And he's done that, and he's done it so flawlessly that it almost didn't, it almost got lost because she is that good a coach. She can coach an NBA basketball team.
0: Yeah, she she can. She's not um, a token person there. She's there because of her skill set. And and the fact that she happens to be a woman, okay. You know, we have another one of those trailblazers here as our coach in the city with Doc Rivers. You know, he's another person who's highly respected for his vocal opinions on what's going on in society and so you know it's 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 interesting we go from talking about coach thompson and and him being a trailblazer to some of these other coaches and they just all seem to carry on the tradition of each other as they move forward it's really interesting to see and look sometimes we get so caught up with what goes on on the court that the progress and strides that get made in society off the court through these teams Is something that's often overlooked but can't really be overstated, the impact that it has on the larger society. Especially with the NBA. The NBA is a trailblazer in that. There were were pictures out there of uh, these guys between 6'2 and 7'2 staring down at her so attentively, not paying attention to the fact that she had a ponytail, paying attention to the fact that she was talking basketball and she was going to put them in the right place to succeed. And, And that was what it was about.
1: Does part of that also stem from the fact that we are, we are now used to women refs in the NBA? Like, do you think, do you think twice now about it when you see, when you see a female ref or does it just
0: seem like second nature now? So I think you and I are a little different because we have seen female refs from the G League before they were really as prominent in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And I think that we see it from a broadcast standpoint with women broadcasters in the booth and so I think that there's a certain sect that kind of accepts it. I think there's a certain sect of the audience that, that isn't quite there yet. I think you and I have been more exposed to it and realized there truly is no difference in quality. And sometimes they're even better. <laughs> if we're being honest about it. It's just kind of what it is. So yeah. I just, I wanted to, to toss that out there before we moved on. I did want to ask you, NBA wants to try and do some contact tracing with their uh, their teams and players wearing sensors. What do you say? He wants to. I be, Haven't they agreed to this? Apparently, they're going to wear this contact sensor on team planes, on buses, practices, arenas. They aren't required to wear it during games or when they're at the hotel. Smart well, but- see, that,
1: so there's the problem. Okay, yeah. So, so I'm surprised they agreed to this, except when you see where they agreed to do it. So they're doing it in the team practice facility where everybody's watching them anyway. It's not that it's not much of a violation of privacy but when they leave there and go to the team hotel or they go back to their homes or something like that then it's not on them so what's the difference it it, it will it may have a, a minuscule effect but the problem is when somebody's not there and whether or not they're being responsible and i'm by the way i'm not suggesting they should do this because there are pri- major privacy concerns with this but if you're going to do this it doesn't have much value unless you do it in the areas that are at risk, which and is they, when they leave. They did have something like this in the bubble. Uh, but yes, it, but they, it, were all, they were all being monitored. There was no, you, I mean, you, you would go into your hotel room and you would assume you, no camera was watching you. But the second you left your hotel room door, everybody saw everybody. Yes. And there was no place to go unless you were Lou Williams and you left and found a strip club to go to. Everybody, <laughs> everybody else was in a bubble and there was really no trouble to be had.
0: I love how smoothly you're always able to drop that into any- what the Lou, Lou Williams and,
1: and Mr. Oh, I'm sorry, he went there for the chicken wings. Is what he, he went said. there for the chicken wings. <laughs> Jeff, come on, you know this. Let's. uh let's you, you, get- do real, you do realize that no matter what Lou Williams does, the rest of his career and the rest of his life, that when his obituary is written, that it will say somewhere in that story, love chicken wings. He left the bubble and, and to go to a strip club in the middle of a pandemic. And claimed it was for chicken wing.
0: Only if you're writing it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's let's move on to some other sports. There is so much to talk about. Jeff, the hockey season starts January 13th. The Flyers will start again. That is 12 days away. Are you excited? I know <laughs> Vito on the other side of the glass is like breaking out in. Well, high wait, wait, but he, the he, so
1: the hockey they're hockey. not they're not technically even in camp yet, right? Yeah. Condensed, Jeff. Condensed. Yeah. So we're 12 days away. These guys better have been in, cha- I mean, we're asking a lot of, of professional athletes to train on their own in a lot of instances when they don't have the same training equipment and the tra- training opportunities that they would have in a non-demand uh, pandemic situation. I mean, Sam, when we had Sam Char- Carcini on last week, he said that they they were practicing, they were, they were, they were finding ice time to go do, that's great. It's not the same thing. We've all been to you and I live in the town where they have their practices and go to the practices and, and you see how rigorous those practices are. They're not even in that situation yet. And they're going to be playing a regular season
0: game in 12 days. And then because somehow the NHL thinks <laughs> that Lake Tahoe is near the East Coast, apparently, uh, they will play an outdoor game in Lake Tahoe for what is being billed as the Mystery Alaska Experiment. Now, in fairness, I love Mystery Alaska. I love outside hockey. I'm totally cool seeing the Flyers play the Bruins, the Avs play the Knights. But, Jeff, you had a question about this in the overall scheme of what the NHL is doing this year with their schedule. Yes,
1: so they reconfigured the divisions so that there would not be long travel, right? Yes. Okay. So now that in the middle of this supposed reconfiguration, the Boston Bruins, who are close to the Atlantic Ocean, and the Philadelphia Flyers, who are close to the Atlantic Ocean, are now gonna go over the Rocky Mountains, almost to the Pacific Ocean, but not quite, to go play a weekend in Lake Tahoe. Why can't that now the teams that are playing or who else is it? the Colorado Avalanche? And who's the other team?
0: The Vegas Golden Knights. So okay, I guess so, Dallas was busy. So you
1: couldn't get the ducks. Kings, you couldn't get the you know, San ducks. Jose sharks. Um, there's a whole bunch of teams that are close to the Pacific ocean that could stay within the whole idea of these sections. And I there, there are watching, frozen
0: lakes here. I will love watching the flyers outdoors, but you do make
1: a good point. I mean, why can't the, why can't the, why not split it up and then have the Flyers and the
0: Brewers play somewhere around here? I kind of like, I liken it to, and I'm stepping into a minefield here. Like, so all these coaches (laughs) wear masks on the sidelines, right? Right. Except for when they want to talk to people, they take them down and scream in their face. Isn't that the whole point of the mask? Yeah. Especially at the refs.
1: Yes. I, I love it. Every time I watch a basketball game, whether it's college or pro basketball, I don't know how you shifted here from hockey to that, but. Because, because it, doesn't it was happen protocol. in hockey.
0: It, it's the the following of the protocols that I don't. Oh, okay. So the protocol there is we're going to keep everybody in their own area so they're not exposed to stuff. We'll send the Flyers halfway across the country with the Bruins. In other sports, it's wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask until we get right up close to you. We'll take that down and just spit all over you. Yeah, to the refs. Yes, and so the players.
1: And, and, and you see every coach do this. Just so you know, you can actually, hear, especially if you're in somebody's face. You can hear through a mask. You can
0: hear them through the mask. Yes. It's God. cloth. Believe me, I have a three and a half year old. I'm very aware. <laughs> you can hear them You can hear
1: through a wall mask. with a three and a half year old.
0: <laughs> you can hear everything.
1: Uh, let's move on to. Well, hold on. So on. so th- there's one thing about the flyers that I found interesting from oh, the news yeah. in the last couple of days which is all of a sudden we're hearing Sam Marin is moving from defense to offense Surprised? Yeah. For a variety of reasons. One, it comes mm-hmm. out of left field. As far as we know uh, this, is, I mean, I haven't heard whispers of this. You and I have talked for years about Gossespierre maybe moving, moving to offense. Cause that makes sense. Cause he's fast and his defense doesn't seem to be that strong. What I don't understand about Sam Marin was why are you moving him to offense? He's a big guy. You don't see the big guys out on the
0: wing like that. I think that's why they want to move him, though. They're looking, from what Fletcher has said in the past, they're looking for some more physicality out on the wings.
1: Yeah, but you still need
0: speed out on the wings. And i do. not going to have that speed after having two surgeries. I'm not sure either. I'm very curious to see how this all works. I'm also curious to see because, again, like you said, they only have 12 days of camp. So he's moving positions. He's basically going to learn on the fly there. Well, wait. I'm saying there's 12 days left. Are they starting camp today? Oh, when no, does right. camp even start? I think it starts like the seventh. Vito probably. Okay, doesn't. so that
1: that's right. that's a week. But that's less than a week before the season.
0: On the other side of the glass, Mike Vito probably has a countdown timer on his mobile phone telling him when camp's open and the season starts and he's got his schedule ready it's it's like baseball for you. Oh well, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, that's enough hockey until hockey actually starts. There's still some NFL for us to be talking about. Is there? Really? I thought the season was over already. Well, how about the coaching carousel? Can we talk about my 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 favorite guy, Urban Meyer? He's coming back. It, well, we don't know if he's coming back. He hasn't been hired as far as I know as of this broadcast, but the rumor is is that he's apparently talking to teams. He and okay. Trevor
0: Lawrence are going to team up at Jacksonville now that the Jets screwed themselves okay. out of the first pick.
1: now, do you remember the Urban Meyer who was coaching the Florida Gators?
0: Yeah, the one who was burnt out and wanted his health. Um
1: he had had serious health issues, I, I thought was the reason that he had that he left. Yes. That right? That was okay. my understanding. The fact that there were all the problems with his players that came out after he left had nothing to do with it. But apparently he needed to leave. Somehow, despite all that his health got a whole lot better and the world was a whole lot brighter. And the sun came out 365 days when he got hired at Ohio state.
0: This is where you're Michigan. I hate Ohio. No, state.
1: no, no, They're no. no. I, I didn't, I didn't like urban Meyer when he was at Utah,
0: but it so, adds to it.
1: Uh, so, so <laughs> yeah, yet I did t- spend time with him last year at the <laughs> army Navy game. Bonded on the sidelines <laughs> at the army Navy game. You're very nice. That's right. And, and there is, there is photo evidence to prove it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so now he's going to cut. He leaves Ohio state. Yes. And now, now he's going to go to the pros years later and somehow his health is miraculously better and
0: he's not going to have all the stress problems there. My house would get better too. If I got Trevor Lawrence as my quarterback coming out of the draft, how am a <laughs> Jets fan. You go through the whole season, losing your team screws the pooch in the last two games. Well, my favorite is the Jets now
1: have a quarterback who by all accounts seems to be a good quarterback that was screwed up by a really bad coach who's gone after the season. And they've now screwed that. And Sam Darnold is lobbying to stay as a jet. When is the last player that you can recall who actually lobbied to stay or go to the New York Jets?
0: Yeah, it doesn't happen often. So the the Jets should hold on to him (laughs) and never let him go. You want to talk about, you know, players leaving. This could be the last week we see some Eagles on the field on this team. I thought you were talking about Frank Gore because I never thought he was going to (laughs) retire. That too, he'll retire. But I mean, you know, does Deshaun Jackson come back on this team? Even a guy we had a few weeks ago. Do you want him back? (sighs) Do you want him back
1: again with the the injury history he has, even if he had one great catch that ended up with him
0: doing a backflip as he crossed the goal line? And then barely play it after that, so right. you're taking up a spot. No, I, but I'd like them to actually draft a spot everybody. with lots of money. But he's not playing for a reduced salary. Uh, Alshon Jeffrey will be gone. Like, there'll be a lot Are of sure? story on this roster. Are you sure? God, I hope so. Jeff, I lose my head. He is back. <laughs> your, your
1: long national
0: Ito nightmare. It'll be not, over. ido does not think Jeffrey is gone. He thinks oh. he's back. Well,
1: I think I quite frankly, I think he's saying that just to, to
0: keep your nightmare going. No, he's, he's being honest. It's a 10 million in dead cap hit next year. Uh-huh. It's the same thing with, you know, Wentz with the challenge that they have there. How are they going to figure out how to do this with what they have? They are so far over the cap, They're like 60 million over the cap before Wentz's extension kicks in, which is like $32 million more. They're almost $100 million over the cap. So this team is going to be very different next year. But I don't know if it's going to be in the front office or at the coaching position. It doesn't seem like we're hearing those rumblings. I, don't th- I think it's all going to stay.
1: I think they're going to, to give them another year to fix this.
0: Because it's just injuries,
1: right? Just I, th- I think better. everybody has the convenient out that ev- with everything that happened with the pandemic, with all the injuries that the Eagles had. That things might have turned out differently if, if we didn't have the season. I, I'm not saying it's, believe me, I don't think it's right. Well, I'm, I'm the, just saying that everybody's got the convenient
0: excuse. So, this is where we're at. Now. If we sneak into the playoffs, it's yeah. we're so close. We just need another player. Yeah. But what, was, what will the their team, record be? What will there be
1: if they win this weekend? What will their record be?
0: No, no, they're not sneaking in this year. But in past, oh, years, okay. they've gone to the end of the season where a team clearly wasn't good enough. But Mm -hmm. they got in, and it's like, well, we made the playoffs last year. We're close. We just have to make a couple moves. To now, we're so far out of the playoffs, but it's just injuries, So we've kind of got a reason for just not getting there. Is that right? Well,
1: then then here's my question. If they can't – you want to talk about cap hits. You know what the the tremendous cap hit Carson Wentz is if you trade him, right? So, so Mike, well, well, let me ask my question. Uh, Would you – do you think – that Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts can coexist next season?
0: I don't know. I really don't know. And
1: Well, okay, so it, you, something gives you pause. Is it Carson Wentz that gives you pause, or is it Jalen Hurts that gives you pause?
0: Because I have an easy answer to that. It's the way that this team handles those two players. This is an Eagles-created controversy. Oh, I, I disagree with you. I'm, I, they chose to draft Jalen Hurts where they did, knowing they just gave him an extension – and created the situation where they're in a city where everybody loves the backup here in Philadelphia. Okay. Um,
1: A a hall of fame, easy first ballot hall of fame quarterback in green Bay, Wisconsin. Yes. uh, What has, has a much bigger uh, ego has a much bigger uh, and, and he being
0: great if they took another offensive lineman to fill in for their left tackle. Yes. But there, cause he tore his ACL, but instead they've got a quarterback sitting on the bench. Now, just because they're playing well, despite the pick that they made and didn't give him a weapon doesn't mean that it was the right move for them. No, I'm not
1: make. saying it's the right. That, that's not my point. My point is, is that, that they have found a way to coexist there and, um, and, and, and instead of curling up in a ball and going, oh, no, Jordan Love is going to take my spot, what did he do? He even raised his game with a, a bad offensive line, with wide receivers other than Devontae Adams, who, was, who are not particularly well-known receivers. And he made himself even better and made the team better. Carson Wentz curled up in a ball. And I'll tell you right now, Jalen Hurts played at Alabama I believe he won a national championship, didn't he? Uh, or, or he was in the national. Ended, championship. Tua
0: won that game, and then he transferred to Oklahoma. Yeah, but
1: the year the year before, I believe they were at Tua, least in. Tua,
0: it. Yeah, it was when Tua won it. He came in and um, played really well. He replaced him, right? Time.
1: So, so he's already dealt with being a star quarterback and being replaced. Handled it well, and then he went to Oklahoma. He stayed till the end of the season. There was no issue. We know that he can deal with competition in the locker room. My question is whether or not Carson Wentz can coexist really because a,
0: I don't think he can. In a perfect world that works, but Carson Wentz is a 100 million dollar hit against the cap over the next couple of years and that changes things. So so what do you do? Do you
1: do actually play the lesser the the lesser quarterback?
0: No, I because think because he's gonna, making more money. I think they're going to try and get creative and trade him. I, I just think Doug's lost confidence. Oh, today. that wasn't
1: my question. My question is, if they're both here, can they coexist?
0: I think it depends what the team does and how they handle it. If they go to an open I don't, You can't blame no, the team no, for everything. If, if He's an adult. He's not a child.
1: No, he, he need, at some point in his career, Carson Wentz needs to stand up. Be a man and take responsibility instead of this always being the team's
0: fault. I don't excuse Wentz at all for the role or lack thereof he's played in the success here. What I will say is they have set this up for players on that team to choose sides for their quarterback. So when they make a change, you've got Fletcher Cox and other guys coming out for Wentz, and then you've got Miles Sanders and other guys coming out for Hurts. And if you bring that dynamic back in the locker room with Alshon Jeffrey, so everything leaks to the media anyway next year. It's just going to be the same thing. It is literally the definition of insanity, rolling this back another year. This did not work. Their coaching carousel of, we'll have a cabal of 20 people run the offense. Do you Doesn't, know how it would have worked? Do you know how it would have worked? How would it have worked? Carson Wentz played well. He would have. And there's no problem. It and would, you would have worked have much better. Quarterback. It would have worked much better if he did. But he didn't. And nothing they're doing right now is fixing that. Tom, Tom Brady had Jimmy Garoppolo.
1: What did they do? They J- Jimmy Garoppolo played they well. In Jimmy top. Garoppolo, exactly, and that's exactly what the Eagles were probably thinking: was we have our quarterback in Carson Wentz. If Jalen Hurts comes in when, whenever Carson Wentz gets hurt or it's scrub time or whatever it is, he plays well, he becomes a trade chip, and they maybe, get more for him. Maybe he or they have top. a really good backup quarterback because there is no team in the NFL that knows better how important having a really good backup is in the last three years than the Eagles.
0: The Eagles won a Super Bowl because they had a great backup quarterback. Maybe he can go play for the Washington football team, who this week released Dwayne Haskins, Jeff. Tell me about it. Well,
1: well, <laughs> you don't want it. It's it's a it's an Ohio State education. I'm sorry. You, that's what you want. me. The fact is, what I don't understand about Dwayne Haskins is he had these problems at the beginning of the season, it was pretty clear. Ron Rivera did not want, he, he moved him from starting quarterback last year to third string. Right. And, and the the first string quarterback was a guy who could barely walk and thought he was going to lose his leg a year ago. And, and, and then I don't even know who their, their backup quarterback was. So now we have a situation he comes in and what does he do? Well, a couple of weeks ago, he had throws for 300 yards in a loss celebrates and then goes out supposedly to a strip club, but some situation he shouldn't have been in. Did he go for the chicken wings too? I have no idea, but I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I didn't know that chicken wings and strip clubs were that good, but, but then, then he has a situation where he gets pulled from a game and he doesn't even stick around after the game. What do you think's going to happen? And I'm getting tired of all these guys coming on TV and saying, Oh, you know, I hope he gets a second chance. I do too. I hope he, I hope he clears things up, but the fact is he deserved this. He asked for this. This again, these are not kids. These are adults. These are professionals making millions and millions of dollars. We all
0: make mistakes. I get it, but he seems
1: to have made a lot of mistakes and not learned from them.
0: I do want to, we've got about two minutes left in the show, Jeff. I want to talk a little college football. Brian Kelly got his family into the stadium for Notre Dame to see Alabama he may have wanted to leave them home the oh, spread so with 19 and a half points. It's already 14, nothing Alabama in the first quarter. Is it
1: really? I, yeah.
0: I wanted to get you a score. There
1: are not many times you could get me to say roll tide. Today's one of them
0: does not appear to be going well. Clemson will be without their offensive coordinator, Tony Elliott. I'm sure Dabo Sweeney will make a comment that will set you on fire after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are you rooting for the fighting dabos or ohio state you know i, I thought, know that this is a hard one for you
1: i really thought i was going to be rooting for ohio state i never thought it happened in my lifetime but yeah, you know what i'm rooting for a tie and i know you can't have that in a semifinal Wait, game. Yes, but, I guess. i'm the but, one that sits
0: on the fence for everything
1: how can you root yeah for but, but mine is not based on any calculation other than just I don't like either team. I really don't like either team. And, and it's not, the Clemson players, uh, look, if if they could win and Dabo Sweeney would not get credit for it, then I'd be okay with it. I just think he's he's allowed, you know, I, I used to think that at the end of the season, we would give the award for like a most obnoxious coach to Dabo Sweeney. Oh, have, he got
0: competition. But I,
1: but I have to say, Dan, Dan Mellon has won the award for stupidity.
0: I wish that our listeners could get copied on the text messages that you send me regarding your favorite college football coaches. Another one of your favorite college football coaches, Mike Leach, had a uh, lack of response to a ugly brawl at the end of the Armed Forces Bowl yesterday. Look, I've never played football with a helmet. I wasn't good enough. Can you explain why you swing and take a point?
1: My question is, did you play football without a helmet? Because that
0: might explain. (laughs) <laughs> it was like a two-hand touch for like <laughs> crappy people but okay. yeah don't worry i had enough concussions that that explained everything that's going on uh but so it was an ugly scene players kicking throwing punches not what you want to see and no comment it was not a very profound response no, nobody me. said he
1: had to rip an individual player nobody he couldn't come out and he couldn't say look this shouldn't happen, period. Yep. End of story.
0: We've got 30 seconds. There's no way I let you go without pointing out that Rutgers is a half game out of first in men's basketball right now. It's 7-1. and one. They got a really tough stretch here. They play three of their next four against top-ranked, top-25 ranked teams in the Big Ten. They got Iowa tomorrow. I'm sorry. I just fell asleep. What What did you just say? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I'm all Look, That'd be the last word then if you want to go to sleep. Any final words from the profound Jeff Cohen? Uh, Michigan beat Maryland yesterday, so go blow. Go blue. There you go. Thanks everybody for joining us this week. Make sure to join And us- happy new year to everyone. Happy new year. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. And we'll talk to you next week.